are listening to the Sports Daily. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Good Monday show for you. We are going to cover what happened in the Final Four this weekend. Even going to address what happened in the Final Four for the Women's National Championship. And we're going to talk a little bit about Major League Baseball. The first weekend of the season, a couple storylines, obviously the time of games, what the hell is Anthony Rendon doing? Are you serious? Literally two games into the season? One game into the season? Idiot. We'll get to that momentarily. All right, let's get started. Uh, I hope you all liked the interview with Jason Stewart this past Friday for the Sports Daily. You know, I try and keep these around 25 minutes, and when I had my first guest, Josh Mooney, on, we were uh, 25, 30 minutes, something like that. I'm guessing when I do have guests on the Friday show, it'll probably run a little bit longer just because there's so many things we can talk about. Now, Jason is a friend of mine. I've known him for over 20 years. I will probably, like the people that I know, when I have other people on that I know, it's probably going to go a little bit longer. If it's somebody that I just email in the media and say, hey, would you like to come on? Probably 25 to 30 minutes. But Somebody that I'm friends with or was friends with or knew in the in the radio industry a long time ago. It's just easier uh, to talk to them and it probably will, will last. So Jason and I, you know, if you listen, stuck to sports for about the first 35 or 40 minutes. Then it just turned into TV talk from there and whatnot. So um, those Friday ones when I do have a guest... Am I going to have one every single Friday? Eh, probably not. But I, when I do have guests, they will be on Friday. So I hope you all enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun talking to Jason. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll refer back to Jason once I start talking about uh, Major League Baseball in, uh, in this podcast later on. But first, I want to start out with Final Four action for the men's. And what a game in the first game between San Diego State and FAU. San Diego State at the buzzer. Butler hits that shot when you thought for a second he didn't even know how much time was left. Two things to point out about that shot. Once San Diego State got the rebound after the block shot, they gave it to Butler. He dribbled it up the whole time. It was his ball from basically about three-quarters court. Dribbles into the corner. He was so close to stepping on the baseline. In fact, I paused it on my TV. TV, there wasn't a great angle. Ref was right there. He was looking at it. I guess he didn't see it. I couldn't tell for sure, but it was about as close as you can get. He almost just stepped out of bounds. And then he pivots back, and there's two seconds left. It's ticking down. You're like, does he even know how much time is on the clock? And then all of a sudden, he just plants, pulls up, and hits a shot at the buzzer. And you might think, oh, my God, we've we've seen that before. A great shot, place is going crazy, team runs out on the court. There was no doubt it was out of his hand before zeros hit the, shot, hit the clock. However, we've seen game-winning buzzer beaters in the Final Four before. There's been four that have happened before that. Probably don't remember Jerome Whitehead from Marquette 1977. Lorenzo Charles, you for sure remember, it was the 1983 national championship game between uh, between NC State and Houston. That was the game where the guy threw it up and the guy caught the alley oop or the short shot that air ball and he dunked it at the buzzer and they won the national championship. Chris Jenkins, 
six years ago for Villanova, hits the three-pointer at the buzzer. Villanova wins the national championship. And then Jalen Suggs in the final four against UCLA hits the shot right across half court to send Gonzaga into the national championship game where they got beat by Baylor. However, all four of those baskets were done when the game was tied. So if those guys missed it, the game was still going to continue. This was the first game-winning buzzer beater in Final Four history in which the team was trailing before the shot. Lamont Butler misses that shot. FAU is going to the national championship. I don't think no people realize that. Maybe they did, but it was the first time ever in Final Four history. And the other thing that was so amazing about that shot, not amazing, but do you realize that was the first lead that San Diego State had in the second half? I mean, they got down by 14 at one point. Might have got up to 15 or 16. But all second half, once they got down by 14, they just cut, kept cutting into it, kept cutting into it, kept cutting into it. But they never took the lead. One time they tied it, and that was at 65-65. San Diego State tied it at 65. Then it got up to 67-65. And then 68-65, then 68-67, 69-67, and all this but they never took the lead. The only lead San Diego State had in that second half was on Lamont Butler's game-winning shot as time expired. Pretty amazing, which if you take into consideration the fact that only time they led in the second half and the first time ever that a game-winning buzzer beater shot in a Final Four game was when the team that hit it was behind, and if he misses, they lose, arguably... You could say that was the biggest shot in Final Four history. How do you argue it? Yes, you could say Jalen Suggs to go to the national championship, but if he misses, they go to overtime. Same with Chris Jenkins and Villanova. They miss it, they go to overtime. So, I know it seems crazy, but I'd say Lamont Butler's shot up to this point, biggest shot in Final Four history. Now, the only way to beat that and have a bigger shot in Final Four history I think would be the same exact thing happen, but it happens in the championship game. Since that happened in the Final Four game, there is a way to beat that, and that's if a team hits the game-winning shot as time expires when they are losing in the national championship game. That would make it the best shot in Final Four history. Now... (laughs) To add to that, that would make it the doubly best shot and would be the same thing happening. The, that would be if that shot gives them their first lead of the second half. So you're really going to have to – I mean, it could happen tonight for all we know. Maybe the same thing happens. But look, another thing that's pretty crazy about San Diego State, do you know that they have won their last two games by exactly one point? It's never happened in college basketball history where a team won their Elite Eight game and their Final Four game by one point. Never happened before. This is a crazy run that San Diego State is on. Now, tonight, seven and a half point underdogs against UConn, which has now won every game in the tournament by a minimum of 13 points. Before Saturday, it was they've won every game by a minimum of 15. They won 72-59. So now you can just lower that to every game they've won by 13 or more. Again, like I said going into last weekend, 
I'm not stepping in front of this UConn train. If you want to bet Miami, which I know a lot of sharps did in Vegas, and a lot of people who have podcasts were saying, I like Miami and the points here, that's fine. I understand people want to bet, and they don't think it's going to be so easy for a team to just steamroll through the national championship and win it six games in a row and every game by double digits and cover every game. But are you going to step in front of the UConn train tonight? Go ahead if you want to and take the seven and a half. I'm not saying that San Diego State can't cover or whatever, but if UConn wins by double digits, you can't be like, oh my God, I can't believe they cover. Why? If they won every other game by double digits, why can't they win this one? You know, I don't know who's going to win tonight. Obviously, UConn is the favorite. It would be pretty surprising if they did lose the national championship tonight, but man, what a run. San Diego State. Back-to-back games by one point, including everything I just went over in their win over FAU. Unbelievable. And how about the fact that FAU has every starter coming back, assuming no guys enter the transfer portal and no guys jump to the NBA, which I can't imagine anybody from FAU is going to declare for the NBA draft. I know they had a great run. I know they made a name for themselves, but... You know, does that mean they're going to guarantee themselves 34-3 and three next season and get to the Final Four? No, it doesn't. They are going to have a lot more pressure on them next year as the hunted rather than the you know doing the hunting. But this is a team that returns everybody. So they're going to be solid, and they're switching conferences. They're going to the AAC next year, and that'll be a tougher conference. So probably we'll lose more games, but this team will be tournament-tested Come next year, I can't imagine them being worse than a nine seed that they are this year. Look forward to FAU basketball next year because they got all these guys coming back, assuming no one jumps and no one goes to the transfer portal. I saw this list and I found it interesting. You know, a guy like Jordan Hawkins from UConn, is you know playing real well, shooting the lights out. He he reminds me of the of the streak that Caleb Love was on last year for North Carolina. That seemed like every important three that the guy took ended up going in. And good chance if UConn wins the title tonight, he could end up being the most outstanding player of the Final Four. Might go to Adama Sinogo. We'll see. But I have a list here of every most important player of the last 20 years, MOP, of the Final Four. And honestly, four of them had average or better NBA careers, and 16 of them, you're just like, oh, wow. What have they done in the pros? Here are the four that have had average to really good NBA careers that have won most outstanding player in the Final Four. Anthony Davis in 2012 for Kentucky. Kemba Walker, 2011 for UConn. Gosh, Mario Chalmers? I mean, he won a title. Good player, average NBA career. Joachim Noah, longevity in the NBA. Good player, was an all-star. I'd count him in there. And then Carmelo Anthony, so maybe five. Definitely Carmelo, he's definitely in that list. So five, but here's the name of... 15 other players that won most outstanding player in the Final Four. And you tell me if these guys resonated at all in the NBA. 2020, I'm going to go in reverse order, starting from last year. Ochai Abaji, 
Kansas, Jared Butler, Baylor, Kyle Guy, Virginia, Dante DiVincenzo, Villanova, Joel Berry, North Carolina, Ryan R.C. Diacono, Villanova, Tyus Jones, Duke, Shabazz Napier, UConn, Luke Hancock, Louisville, Kyle Singler, Duke, Wayne Ellington, North Carolina, Corey Brewer, Florida, Sean May, North Carolina, Emeka Okafor, UConn, Juan Dixon, Maryland. Great college players. Really amounted to not a whole lot in the NBA. Some had a cup of coffee, some had a few good seasons. Dante DiVincenzo has been okay for the last, you know, four or five seasons in the NBA. He's making a name for himself. Played with the Bucks, playing right now with the Golden State Warriors. Good role player, but not a guy that you're just like, wow, he's tore it up in the NBA like he did when he went nuts for Villanova for those two games in the Final Four and got him the MOP. So really interesting that I came across him. Like, wow, some of these names that were dominant in the Final Four and had a great two-game showing amounted to not a whole hell of a lot come NBA time. All right, we're going to move on to Final Four talk, but for the women. I haven't talked women's basketball since I started this podcast January 3rd. I probably won't talk much more of it the rest of the calendar year. Probably won't talk it again until next NCAA tournament time. But I definitely think it's worth it. This this has nothing to do with sexism. It's just something I don't watch. And... I did tune in because it became kind of appointment television when Caitlin Clark of Iowa is doing what she's doing. I like to watch greatness. I've talked about this in the past. Some people just shit on greatness all the time, and I don't care if I'm a bandwagon or not. I will watch Caitlin Clark play basketball because she's unbelievable. She's the best women's shooter that I've ever seen in college basketball. I think Diana Taurasi is close, but I've never seen anybody shoot the ball like Caitlin Clark does in for Iowa. So I was tuned in. Obviously, I couldn't watch Friday night's semifinal game, which he dropped 41 against South Carolina and ruined their perfect season. I didn't see that game. Saw plenty of the highlights. Didn't see the game because I was out, but I watched all of the national championship game yesterday, and she can only do so much. I thought the refereeing was horrible for both sides. Too many foul calls. No flow to the game whatsoever. Her getting a technical, for, which ended up being a personal foul and giving her four fouls. Granted, it only took her out of the game for a minute because it was she sat the last minute of the third, and the coach just said, look, we're down 11. Got to put her back in for the fourth quarter. It's a national championship. And she never picked up her fourth, fifth foul and never fouled out. But what she does out on the court is, is crazy. We've just never seen it. It's awesome to watch, and I will watch it. Is it, does it mean I'm going to watch a bunch of Iowa women's basketball regular season games next year? No. But I will follow it. I will pay attention to their record. I will pay attention to how many points she's dropping games. I'm not going to go looking to watch the games, though. But once the tournament comes, and assuming they make the Final Four next year, because Caitlin Clark is coming back, I did not realize she isn't even eligible to enter the WNBA draft this year. So she has to come back. She'll be back. Paige Beckers from UConn will be back after her injury. I think these these two are setting up. If UConn plays Iowa in the Final Four or for the National Championship next year, that will be one of the most watched games in the history of women's basketball. The semifinal game was the most watched game in the history of college basketball for women. Five and a half million people tuned in to watch that, as they should have. It was great. 
I don't want to sit here and get on any sort of soapbox in regards to what Angel Reese did yesterday at the end of the game with the you can't see me to Caitlin Clark as it was clear LSU was going to win the national championship. All I'm going to say is this. If you have an issue with what Angel Reese did, then you have to have an issue with Caitlin Clark doing the exact same thing Friday night against South Carolina. You can't complain about one and not the other, especially when you complain that Angel Reese is the one doing it, but if Caitlin Clark's doing it, it's okay. Both of them are trash-talking. Trash-talking is part of sports. It's okay. I didn't have a problem with either. I don't know why people are jumping all over Angel Reese for doing it. Well, I kind of know why, and I kind of know what it's rooted in. And And just be honest with yourself. Why would you have an issue with Angel Reese doing it when she's about to win a national championship for an LSU team that won nine games two years ago and two years later after getting Kim Mulkey as the head coach who had won three national championships in her career turned around a program in two years and got them a national championship. The girl's allowed to be excited and do a, hey, you can't see me. And she's taking shit for it? Caitlin Clark did it. Nobody said a word. Why? Why do you think that is? I know why it is. All right, let's end with uh, Major League Baseball. We had opening day on Thursday. We had the weekend of first weekend of baseball. The biggest story going back to opening day, and it goes back to my conversation with Jason uh, Stewart on Friday, 26 minutes less. The average game on opening day was 26 minutes less than last year's average. And if you heard Friday's podcast with Jason, Jason's under the impression that, you know, you, you change the shift, which means there's going to be more runs, but he doesn't understand how that's going to cut time off the game. I, I tried to explain it to him. I didn't really know if he got it, but my whole point is, and I think it's still being proven, because there's more runs in a game doesn't mean the game's going to last longer. The whole point was before when there was no pitch clock, if runs were being scored and a pitcher was getting beat up, he was taking more time on the mound, maybe stepping off the mound, maybe walking around the mound like, man, let's get let's get straight. We got to we got to focus and we got he can't do that now. He still has to pitch at this everybody, whether it's the starter or the reliever. That's where the time saving is coming from. It's not coming from how many runs are scored. It's coming from the fact that no matter how many runs are being scored, the pitchers can't take their sweet-ass time anymore. And I don't know why he can't see that when it's been proven, when this has been instilled in minor league games. I know it's a one-day sample, but 26 minutes, the average game on opening day, was less than last year's opening day. Do you think by the end of this 162-game season – we're only going to be averaging three minutes less, like Jason seemed to think, five minutes less. It's going to be in the 20-minute range. It's too proven already. It's not like they've never tried this and they'll say, wow, let's just see. This has been tried out for seasons already in the minor leagues, and they knocked off 20 to 25 games on minutes on the average of all minor league baseball games. I don't see how that doesn't change. And the point goes to it's because – yeah, there might be more base runners and more scoring. But number one, you're never going to have a game with six runs or less that takes two hours and 50 minutes. It's just not going to happen anymore. Pitchers outside of a 1,000 foul balls being hit. And in the higher scoring games, the pitchers can't take their sweet-ass time. That's what made games so long. 
a bunch of pitching changes and a bunch of pitchers who, once things got tough and runners got on base, they were taking their time. They were getting in the set position, breaking their hands, getting in the set position, taking time out. Batters, taking time out, key situations. You can only take one time out per at bat now. We saw batters taking three or four sometimes in key situations. We saw pitchers stepping off the rubber three or four times. That's not going to happen anymore. So you can have all the same stuff happening with runs and all this, but the pitchers still have to stay on a clock. Nobody on base, you got to throw the ball within 15 seconds, and most are throwing it within 10 seconds. Runners on base, got to throw it within 20 seconds. Most are throwing it within 15 seconds. That's where you're saving your time. I just think that, you know, Jason's a good guy, sports guy through and through, loves baseball. I just think he's not looking at it. He's looking at it too simplistically. Like, wait, you're taking away the shift. That means there's going to be more runners. That means there's going to be more scoring, which means more ba- more time. No, it doesn't mean more time. Because the pitchers still have to abide by a pitch clock. The other biggest story from opening weekend was Anthony Rendon after an Angels loss, I believe, on opening day, just walking back you know, through the dugout and back. Some Oakland A fan was heckling him. And in a 12-second video that is circulated all around the internet, he has the guy by the shirt and calls him a motherfucker and a bitch. Like, what are you doing, Anthony? It's game one. <laughs> this isn't the playoffs. You didn't commit some costly error that cost your team the game. It is game one against the Oakland A's. Yes, their bullpen blew it. They lost 2-1. to one. And this guy is that steamed. No matter what this fan said, I don't care. The fan was obviously a jerk. We hear this all the time. Fans can be idiots. Just because you buy a ticket to a game doesn't give you the right to be a grade-A jackass and just say whatever you want. Was this fan out of line? Absolutely. But so was Anthony Rendon. You can't put your hands on the fans. What were you thinking? And after game one... I mean, good Lord, how upset could you have possibly been? I don't care what this guy said. Just point him out to secure. I don't care if he if he said the worst thing you could possibly think of, like, Anthony, I don't know, I wish you were dead. I wish your wife was dead or your kids were dead. Point him out to security and say, security, Look at what this guy just, you know, this is what this guy said. Get him out of here. The game was already over. It's not like this happened during the game. That's the other thing. The game was over, and Anthony literally, all he had to do was make a right turn down the steps and just go back into the clubhouse. But it bothered him that much that he grabs the guy by the shirt and calls him an mf and a bitch? He's going to get suspended, and I think it's going to be at least a week. you got professional players putting their hands on the fans. Like I said, I hate fans who do this. They're idiots. They get what they have coming to them. Kind of like the guy on the opening night at Dodger Stadium who ran out on the field and turned around and opened up a ring box to propose to his wife or his fiance who was still in the stands, and then he got bum-rushed by the security and tackled. I mean, I'm sure he went to prison that night, but he was already out because I saw a picture of him the next day on, on – uh, on some sort of social media, it was either TikTok or Instagram reels, and he was back at home, and he's like, she said yes, no matter, you know, how much it hurt me. You know, he got he got tackled pretty good. But that's what I'm saying. 
It's game one, Anthony. Calm down. You can't put your hands on the fans no matter what they say to you. If they run out on the field and attack you, fair game. But you're literally walking back, about to turn around down the steps. And this guy says something to you that sets you off so much that you grab him by the shirt and MF him and call him a bitch. He's getting suspended. Guarantee that. And I don't think it's going to be like, oh, you're out one or two games. I think this should be a week suspension. It's possible he could get two weeks for something like this. Because this is, you just don't do this. You don't put your hands on fans. So we'll see uh, when that comes down, if and when it comes down. Major League Baseball says they're investigating it. It's fairly clear what happened. Some fans said something, and Anthony Rendon put his hands on him and called him names. Can't do that. So we'll see what kind of penalty Major League Baseball hands down. If I'm Major League Baseball, it's at least a week for me. And you know what? I have Anthony Rendon on my fantasy team, and I'm saying suspend this guy for a week. (laughs) So it's not that I'm, you know, looking out for him. I don't care what they do to him. It's a stupid, stupid thing to do. Anyway, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Please rate, subscribe, and review an Apple podcast. Please pass this along to any of your friends. I think we've got a lot of good stuff here on this podcast. And with that said, thank you for listening. And remember, sports will always be the greatest reality show on television. See you.